Today's reading is taken from Luke chapter 20 to chapter 21, verse 4. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the church marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather here together um, to worship and to praise your holy name. And now, Father, as we look at your word, we pray that you may speak to us. We pray that you may open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see you. And Father, we just pray that your spirit may point us to Jesus. And Father, that we may see that our only hope is found in him. Father, speak to us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin by telling you a nursery rhyme. I know this is what you came for. Ba ba black sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir, yes, sir. Three bags full. One for the master, one for the dame, and one for the little boy who lives down the lane. Now, let's analyze this for a second because this is really important. Each person in this story gets an equal share of the bags of wool. The master gets one bag, the dame gets one bag, and the little boy gets one bag as well. It's a win for socialism, isn't it? But if I was to tell you this nursery rhyme has nothing to do with sheep. In fact, this is actually a protest song related to the heavy taxation on wool in 1275 by King Edward I. And he did this in order to pay for his military pursuits. It was a law that lasted for 200 years. And so historians discovered a, an edition of this nursery rhyme in the 1700s. And these were the original words of this nursery rhyme. Ba, ba, a black sheep. Have you any wool? Yes, old mate, I have. Three bags full. Two for the master. One for my dame, but none for the little boy that cries in the lane. Now look at the difference here between the two. Now in history, the money sold for a sack of wool would be split between the farmer, the king, that's the master here in this nursery around, and in the church, who is the dame. And the person who lost out and made no money at all was the shepherd boy who worked the hardest in caring for and protecting and sharing the sheep. And so when we look at this nursery rhyme here, we're left thinking, is it really fair? Is it fair that the person who works the hardest, ends up giving the most, receives nothing for his labor? Whilst those who profit off it most put in very little effort for their reward. Well, last week we thought about and the link between greed and worry in Luke chapter 12. As Jesus teaches his people 
to value where their true treasure lies. And under the intended pattern of this world from God, this would be fine. However, as sure as many of you know, this is not the reality that we see around us. Whenever we see injustice, whenever we are challenged by the prospect of people suffering in the world who we know to be faithful Christians, we have to ask this question. Are these people struggling because they don't trust in God enough? Has God neglected these people because they lack faith as opposed to us who in comparison are living very comfortable lives? Well, if you were to turn your Bible to Luke chapter 19, you would see that Jesus, as he enters the temple, and he recognizes that those who operate the temple are not keeping it as a place of worship for all the people. But instead, they have turned the court of the Gentiles into a den of robbers by selling cows, sheep, and pigeons for acceptable sacrificial ceremonies. Therefore, they are making it exclusive. And so Jesus here turns over the tables and he chases out the retailers, the money changers and the animals and quotes to them the words of the prophets. So when we get to our selected portion of God's word that we are looking at here today, we will see that Jesus is fully aware of all that's been going on in the temple. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. This is not the true pattern of God's kingdom, is it? For in the kingdom, it's not about selfish gain. It's, it's not about anything that we can do for ourselves. But it's all about selfless giving. As we acknowledge and confess who reigns as king and we submit ourselves to him. You know, Luke wanted his reader, Theophilus, to be certain of this. And for us to be certain how the pattern of the kingdom works as those who are lofty are humbled and those who are low are lifted up in grace. And so the main point that I want us to consider here today in Luke chapter 20 verse 45 to chapter 21 verse 4 is this. A rich but false religion has nothing to offer to God rather than an impoverished but true devotion which is able to freely give everything in faith. And with this in mind, we're going to split our passage here today into two sections, and we will see these two points. Firstly, those who profit falsely of others will receive condemnation. Those who profit falsely of others will receive condemnation. And Jesus has been spending the last couple of days teaching in the temple now. And as we come into verse 45 here, he begins another discourse of teaching, but this time it is for his disciples, but with a wider audience in earshot. Look at verse 46 of me and listen to what Jesus says here if you have your Bibles open in front of you. Beware of the teachers of the law. Now these teachers have been testing Jesus over these couple of days in the temple. And in their attempts to catch him out and arrest him, they are trying to get rid of their little problem. And they use trick questions here um, involving both marriage and money to catch him. But why should Jesus' disciples be wary of these types of people? 
Well, it's not for their questions that Jesus tells them to be wary of them. Look at the four things that Jesus points out here between verses 46 and 47. First thing in verse 46a, they are to be beware because of their dress code, their elegance and their exuberance. Verse 46b, they are to beware of their attention-seeking behavior. Verse 46c, their demand for status. And finally, in verse 47, their desire for power and showmanship. And it's probably this last one here, which is the most damning statement from Jesus. And what's interesting here is that these people tried to use both money and marriage to catch out Jesus. And yet listen to what Jesus says to, about these group of people in verse 47. They devour. Now let's stop here and think about this for a second. To devour is to eat something recklessly. Think about how the lioness devours her prey when you watch planet Earth. Or how the hyena, how he devours what he has scavenged. See, these are teachers of the law who devour the house of widows. These widows, whom we can assume from the fact that they have a house here that Jesus mentions of, that they were once wealthy due to the marriage of their husbands. But now they are alone. They have become victims to those whose responsibility it was under the law to look after them, both spiritually and physically. But not only have the temple leaders here used the case of the widow to try and entrap Jesus for their benefit, they take advantage of those widows in their own personal lives. And whilst they could claim that they are praying for them, instead they are luring their prey into their grasp. And they are using their newly acquired wealth to indulge in their lavish lifestyles. These people are snakes. They are snakes who are nothing more than the sons of Satan. And for that, Jesus says, these men will be punished most severely. Now, when you think about the equivalent of who these people are today, it's easy for us to quickly imagine um, the sharply dressed preacher with the hair slicked back and the, the pearly white teeth. And they're emblazoned over every bestseller self-help book that they have ever written, telling you how you can get your best life now. However, that image might need to be slightly updated. These showmen are standing on the stage of their church arenas, flashing the latest Jordan 1 retro Dior's that are valued at 8 grand a pair. Or if you want to be a bit more cosy, maybe you can um, um, snuggle up in your Burberry hoodie, which costs just over 1 grand. You see, these celebrity pastors are emasculating the celebrities you see in OK Magazine or the influencers that you see all over social media and YouTube. And yet, in the same way that Cristiano Ronaldo can cause the market value of Coca-Cola to drop by $4 billion in a single press conference, these people, their goal and desire is to influence and attract non-believers with their attractive lifestyle. Their motives are to line their pockets and to supplement their lives of luxury. And in order for them to maintain their lavish lifestyles, they are throwing caution to the wind with their behavior and will do anything they can, 
anything to make these people buy into what they are selling. See, this issue in the church, though, is not unique in comparison to the problem of sin and suffering in the world. It's just like how a person starving in a third world country. And we are angered by that person who is suffering and is close to the brink of death. But yet, that's not their fault. That's probably because of government oppression. That's probably because of famine that was caused by outside sources destroying the environment. And yet, we can be angry about a person suffering in a third world country. We can be angry about human trafficking and child slave labor and all of these wrong things in the world. And yet we don't realize how much that whenever we see oppression, injustice, and sin, we get angry at who causes it. But if that's the case, then how come we treat those who peddle God's word with faulty doctrine just so they can fit out their lavish lifestyles with less indignation? J.C. Ryle. Um, the former bishop of Liverpool and of the 1800s and the writer of Holiness, um, who, which some of you um, I hopefully will be reading um, this summer, says this in a sermon that he once preached. We should no more tolerate false doctrine than we would tolerate sin. To regularly hear unscriptural teaching is a serious thing. It is a continuous dropping of slow poison into the mind. And so the heart of false teaching in our culture today is normally the goal of what's in it for me instead of what's in it for God. If you are to use worldly means to win people to the gospel, you're going to be using those same means to keep them grounded in the gospel. Many people today only want the benefits of the gospel. They want to pick and choose what suits them. But more importantly, they want the kingdom without the king. See, not only should we be careful of these false teachers who peddle those things which are more attractive and abuse the system, but we too must be careful of what we endorse, what we say and what we do. Particularly those of us, even more so, who are charged with the leadership in the church and have the responsibility to teach God's word. In James chapter 3 verse 1 it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So just as we are to beware and be aware of those false teachers, be also aware of your pride. Be aware of your greed. Be aware of your hypocrisy. For God will judge you. And if you're leaders and teachers of his word, he will judge you even more with greater strictness against these things. So we see here um, that those who profit falsely off others will receive condemnation. And so if that's the case, how do we live a life that's contrary to the life of the Pharisees, which Jesus warns us both his disciples and us against? Well, let's just quickly think here about a quick, simple observation 
made by Jesus at the beginning of chapter 21. And this is where we see our second point here. That those who give in poverty will truly receive glory. Those who give in poverty will truly receive glory. But before we look at this point, I just want to ask you all a question. What is true religion? Now, according to the Jewish law, it is to completely love God. And to love God means to do what is his pleasing and perfect will. And so his will in Deuteronomy chapter 10 is to execute or bring justice and to care for the vulnerable, including the widow. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 14, there were specific rules in caring for widows in which the resources came from the tithing, which was done by God's people in the tabernacle. All those who had nothing to give, that's the Levite, the foreigner, the orphan and the widow, they would be looked after by the elders in the town. And Jesus' brother James, who wrote the letter of James, I just mentioned this a second ago, calls this pure and undefiled or true religion. And so as Jesus sits down in the temple courts to watch the rich folk place their money into the temple treasury, if you look with me in verse 2, he watches the poor widow put in two small copper coins. Now how could Jesus knowing what was thrown in here is probably due to the shape and design of the treasury box. In the temple you would have 12 of these boxes placed along in a row. Each of them are made of metal and they, the opening of them is shaped like a trumpet. And with there being no cash or contactless payment scheme, in those days the only currency available was coins. And so the noise of the coin would be dependent on its size as it's thrown into this box. And so two small copper coins wouldn't make much of a sound at all, especially not compared to a sack of silver or gold that has been poured into the trumpet and mouth by the rich people in verse 1. But in the hustle and the bustle of the temple at this time, the Son of God here recognizes the contribution that this widow has made. And although we don't know what Jesus' thoughts were towards this widow giving, we know that injustice is clearly at hand here. This widow was supposed to be in care of the priests and the Pharisees. And yet just as the nursery rhyme can be contorted by men to change its implication and its teaching, and just as we've seen in verse 47 how God's law has been contorted by the Jews, this widow here, has become the exploitation of the Pharisees. But look at what Jesus says here in verse 3 with me. He says this, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. Now has Jesus misunderstood the logic of Maz? For surely to give a smaller amount than what others give um, out of their wealth, is to give less. But listen again to his reason in verse 4. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Now for a rich Jew, um, if he or she was to part with only a little bit of their money, 
that they feel that they have rightfully earned. But the widow here realizes that her dependency does not come from the temple. It does not come from the Jews or the Pharisees. But her dependency comes from the one who gave her the wealth that she has. Her dependency is God. The one who commands those in the temple to give. And so when giving all that she has, however small it may be, she has expressed so much more in devotion and faith than anyone else. See, the widow here gave despite her poverty. Let me just ask you a question though. What is poverty? Well, we usually assume that poverty means being without necessity or wealth, that we don't have enough to survive upon. But let me just share with you a few quotes from a book called Voices of the Poor. This is the way some people would define poverty based on their circumstances where they come from. So from Uganda, someone says this, When one is poor, she has no say in public. She feels inferior. There is famine in her house. No clothing, no food, no progress in her family. In Cameroon, they say that the poor have a feeling of powerlessness and an inability to make themselves heard. In Latvia, someone said, we cannot afford to invite anyone to our house. And we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a present. The lack of contact leaves one depressed, creates a constant feeling of depression and a sense of low self-esteem. And finally, in Moldova, someone said, For the poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation and shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. See, if poverty is not just about having little to none of wealth, poverty is a mindset. It is a feeling of complete, complete oppression and defeat in our heads. But when Jesus speaks about this widow who gave out of her poverty in verse 4, she gives everything despite her circumstances. She doesn't allow her poverty to withhold in her giving because it's her poverty that causes her to recognize her true dependency upon God and to be able to live by faith. And for many of us, I am certain that we struggle with this. We recognize the state of poverty both in the third world and also here in our own country, maybe much more so in Broccoli and in the Lewisham area. I know this for a fact because my sister works with the homeless in East Belfast. And so I've heard stories of people who do not deserve the struggles they face and yet this is what they find themselves in. You know, there's a poem by Robert Burns um, called A Man's A Man For A That, otherwise known as Is There For Honest Poverty? And you'll be glad to hear that I'm not going to say it to you today because I'm afraid you might not be able to understand it. 
But the point of the poem is that wealth and worth do not determine who a person is, no matter their position, their privilege, or their, how much money they have. And when we look at what the Bible tells us, we find this. We own nothing. But God owns everything. Psalm 50 verse 10 tells us that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And 1 Corinthians verse four, or chapter 4 verse 7 tells us that God has given you all that you received. So your bank account, the roof over your head, the clothes on your back, your husband or your wife and your children, the shoes on your feet, even the beat of your heart. It all comes from and it belongs to God. It belongs to God who determines your worth. And we do not need to make ourselves poor. But we must realize first and foremost that in God's eyes we are already poor. But even though we are poor, God does not cast us out like rubbish. God does not leave us to the wayside like refuse. Earlier in Luke chapter 20, the Jews tried to catch Jesus out with a question about taxes. And listen to Jesus' response, particularly the last part here. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. You see, Jesus used a coin with Caesar's face to silence his opposition. And so if it is God who determines your worth, and if it is God who made you in his own very image, and if God considers you, not like rubbish, but he considers you his child, like we looked at in Luke chapter 12 last week, then what can you give back to God what is already belongs to God? And let me be clear here. God doesn't need anything. God isn't in debt to any of us. And he doesn't need anything of us to build his church or to further his kingdom. But just like um, whenever your children, um, maybe now or whenever they were younger, um, and your birthday or, your, or Christmas was coming up, and you would give them um, £20 and you would say, right, here's £20, go and buy mommy or daddy a birthday present, or a Christmas present. See God in that same manner. Gives us his resources. All that he owns. In order that we. Might give them. Back to him. We are guardians. We are guardians of all his possessions. And all of his money. You see God has entrusted us with them. And so whatever we choose to do with them reflects our view of eternity now. You see, the widow did not have to give, but she chose to, because even though she was poor, she had complete faith that God, her father, would take care of all her needs. You see, to give a bit is not to give, is not the same as giving all. Giving in part only means contributing to what we do not need out of our abundance. 
But in giving all, it means complete sacrifice. And if we need a reminder what complete sacrifice means for us, then we have no better example to turn to than Jesus himself. Who, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says that though he, that Jesus, was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. True poverty in the sight of God means glory with Christ. False religion means condemnation from God who will not allow those who he cares about to be met with injustice. And so just as we've seen at the beginning, a rich but false religion has nothing to offer to God rather than an impoverished but true devotion which is able to give to freely give everything in faith. Let me just finish um, by telling you a story about the pig and the chicken. A pig is walking down the street one day and the chicken crosses the road to speak to him. The chicken asks the pig if he would like to go into business together with her. And the pig is intrigued. And he asks the chicken, what kind of business are you thinking? The chicken suggests, what about the catering business? The pig asks, that's a good idea. But what kind of food should we serve to our customers? Well, the chicken says, what about bacon and eggs? The pig stops the chicken at this point and tells her, no thank you. For you, it only involves contribution. But for me, it involves sacrifice. See, when we contribute, we are in danger of looking around to see how God will bless us in building our kingdom for now. But when we sacrificially give, we are looking upwards in faith to see how God is building his kingdom through the sacrifice of his son for us, bringing balance to the scales of justice and welcoming those who are seen as poor now, that they will be made spiritually rich through the riches of God's grace, the riches of his glorious inheritance, the riches of the glory of Christ. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge of this small but deeply significant passage in your word. Father, we pray that we do not be like the Pharisees in our hearts. That our focus is not set upon the, uh, the attention and the cares of this world and what this world thinks about us. Father, that we do not focus on what we can get from this world. But Father, our focus is that what can we give for the sake of your kingdom? Father, we thank you that Jesus gave his life for us. Father, we thank you that for those of us who believe in him, that one day Christ will give us his glory. So Father, help us treasure this in our hearts. Help us treasure the kingdom of God in our minds 
So that, Father, whatever we say or do, whatever we think or whatever we give, whether it's money or time, Lord, whatever it is, Father, that we are doing so not to build our kingdoms, but so that we may see you build your kingdom and we may see the, um, the fruits of that in eternity when we are met with Christ our King. Father, remind us of your truth time and time again this week and we pray you have blessed us through your word now. In Jesus' name, amen.